Section 24 of The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ring of Toth, Part 1. Mr. John Vansittart Smith, F.R.S., of 147A Gower Street, was a man whose energy of purpose and clearness of thought might have placed him in the very first rank of scientific observers. He was the victim, however, of a universal ambition which prompted him to aim at distinction in many subjects rather than preeminence in one. In his early days he had shown an aptitude for zoology and for botany, which caused his friends to look upon him as a second Darwin. But when a professorship was almost within his reach, he had suddenly discontinued his studies and turned his whole attention to chemistry. Here his researches upon the spectra of metals had won him his fellowship in the Royal Society. But again he played the coquette with his subject, and after a year's absence from the laboratory, he joined the Oriental Society and delivered a paper on the hieroglyphic and emotic inscriptions of El Cobb, thus giving a crowning example both of the versatility and of the inconstancy of his talents. The most fickle of wooers, however, is apt to be caught at last, and so it was with John Vansittart Smith. The more he burrowed his way into Egyptology, the more impressed he became by the vast field which it opened to the inquirer, and by the extreme importance of a subject which promised to throw a light upon the first germs of human civilization and the origin of the greater part of our arts and sciences. So struck was Mr. Smith that he straightway married an Egyptological young lady who had written upon the Sixth Dynasty, and having thus secured a sound base of operations, he set himself to collect materials for a work which should unite his research of Lepsius and the ingenuity of Champollion. The preparation of this magnum opus entailed many hurried visits to the magnificent Egyptian collections of the Louvre, upon the last of which, no longer ago than the middle of last October, he became involved in a most strange and noteworthy adventure. The trains had been slow and the channel had been rough, so that the student arrived in Paris in a somewhat befogged and feverish condition. On reaching the Hotel de France, in the Rue Lafayette, he had thrown himself upon a sofa for a couple of hours, but finding that he was unable to sleep, he determined, in spite of his fatigue, to make his way to the Louvre, settle the point which he had come to decide, and take the evening train back to Dieppe. Having come to this conclusion, he donned his greatcoat, for it was a raw rainy day, and made his way across the boulevard des Italiens and down the Avenue de Opera. Once in the Louvre, he was on familiar ground, and he speedily made his way to the collection of papyri, which it was his intention to consult. The warmest admirers of John Francis Start Smith could hardly claim for him that he was a handsome man. His high-beaked nose and prominent chin had something of the same acute and incisive character which distinguished his intellect. He held his head in a bird-like fashion, and bird-like, too, 
was the pecking motion with which, in conversation, he threw out his objections and retorts. As he stood, with the high collar of his great coat raised to his ears, he might have seen, from the reflection in the glass case before him, that his appearance was a singular one. Yet it came upon him as a sudden jar when an English voice behind him exclaimed, in very audible tones, What a queer-looking mortal! The student had a large amount of petty vanity in his composition, which manifested itself by an ostentatious and overdone disregard of all personal considerations. He straightened his lips and looked rigidly at the roll of papyrus, while his heart filled with bitterness against the whole race of traveling Britons. "'Yes,' said another voice. "'He really is an extraordinary fellow.' "'Do you know,' said the first speaker, "'one could almost believe that by the continual contemplation of mummies the chap has become half a mummy himself. He has certainly an Egyptian cast of countenance, said the other. John Fancett Start Smith spun round upon his heel with the intention of shaming his countrymen by a corrosive remark or two. To his surprise and relief, the two young fellows who had been conversing had their shoulders turned towards him and were gazing at one of the Louvre attendants who was polishing some brasswork at the other side of the room. "'Carter will be waiting for us at the Palais Royal,' said one of the tourists to the other, glancing at his watch, and they clattered away, leaving the student to his labors. "'I wonder what these chatterers call an Egyptian cast of countenance,' thought John van de Start Smith, and he moved his position slightly in order to catch a glimpse of the man's face. He started as his eyes fell upon it. It was indeed the very face with which his studies had made him familiar. The regular statuesque features, broad brow, well-rounded chin, and dusky complexion were the exact counterpart of the innumerable statues, mummy cases, and pictures which adorned the walls of the apartment. The thing was beyond all coincidence. The man must be an Egyptian. The national angularity of the shoulders and narrowness of the hips were alone sufficient to identify him. John Vancestart Smith shuffled towards the attendant with some intention of addressing him. He was not light of touch in conversation, and found it difficult to strike the happy mean between the brusqueness of the superior and the geniality of the equal. As he came nearer, the man presented his side face to him, but kept his gaze still bent upon his work. Vancestart Smith, fixing his eyes upon the fellow's skin, was conscious of a sudden impression that there was something inhuman and preternatural about its appearance. Over the temple and cheekbone it was as glazed and as shiny as varnished parchment. There was no suggestion of pores. One could not fancy a drop of moisture upon that arid surface. From brow to chin, however, it was cross-hatched by a million delicate wrinkles, which shot and interlaced as though nature, in some marai mood, had tried how wild and intricate a pattern she could devise. "'West Law Collection de Memphis?' asked the student, with the awkward air of a man who was devising a question merely for the purpose of opening a conversation. 
Cess la, replied the man brusquely, nodding his head at the other side of the room. Vueste un Egyptian, n'est-ce pas? asked the Englishman. The attendant looked up and turned his strange dark eyes upon his questioner. They were vitreous, with a misty, dry shininess, such as Smith had never seen in a human head before. As he gazed into them, he saw some strong emotion gather in their depths, which rose and deepened until it broke into a look of something akin both to horror and to hatred. Non, monsieur, je suis français. The man turned abruptly and bent low over his polishing. The student gazed at him for a moment in astonishment, and then turning to a chair in a retired corner behind one of the doors, he proceeded to make notes of his researches among the papyri. His thoughts, however, refused to return into their natural groove. They would run upon the enigmatical attendant with the sphinx-like face and the parchment skin. "'Where have I seen such eyes?' said Van Sitstart Smith to himself. "'There is something saurian about them, something reptilian. "'There's the membrana, nictans of the snakes,' he mused, bethinking himself of his zoological studies. "'It gives a shiny effect, but there was something more here. "'There was a sense of power, of wisdom, so I read them, "'and of weariness, utter weariness,' and ineffable despair. It may be all my imagination, but I've never had so strong an impression. By Jove, I must have another look at them. He rose and paced round the Egyptian rooms, but the man who had excited his curiosity had disappeared. The student sat down again in his quiet corner and continued to work at his notes. He had gained the information which he required from the papyri and it only remained to write it down while it was still fresh in his memory. For a time his pencil traveled rapidly over the paper, but soon the lines became less level, the words more blurred. And finally the pencil tinkled down upon the floor, and the head of the student dropped heavily forward upon his chest. Tired out by his journey, he slept so soundly in his lonely post behind the door that neither the clanking civil guard, nor the footstep of sightseers, not even the loud hoarse bell which give the signal for closing, were sufficient to arouse him. Twilight deepened in the darkness, and the bustle from the Rue de Rivoli waxed and then waned. Distant Notre Dame clanged out the hour of midnight, and still the dark and lonely figure sat silently in the shadow. It was not until close upon one in the morning that with a sudden gasp and an intaking of the breath, Vansestart Smith returned to consciousness. For a moment it flashed upon him that he had dropped asleep in his study chair at home. The moon was shining fitfully through the unshuttered windows, however, and as his eyes ran along the lines of mummies and the endless array of polished cases, he remembered clearly where he was and how he came there. The student was not a nervous man. He possessed that love of a novel situation which is peculiar to his race. Stretching out his cramped limbs, he looked at his watch and burst into a chuckle as he observed the hour. The episode would make an admirable antidote 
to be introduced into his next paper as a relief to the graver and heavier speculations. He was a little cold but wide awake and much refreshed. It was no wonder that the guardians had overlooked him, for the door threw its heavy black shadow right across him. The complete silence was impressive. Neither outside nor inside was there a creak or a murmur. He was alone with the dead men of a dead civilization. What though the outer city reeked of the garish nineteenth century, in all this chamber there was scarce an article, from the shriveled ear of wheat to the pigment box of the painter, which had not held its own against four thousand years. Here was the flotsam and jetsam washed up by the great ocean of time from that far-off empire. From stately Thebes, from lordly Luxor, from the great temples of Heliopolis, from a hundred rifled tombs, these relics had been brought. The student glanced round at the long silent figures who flickered vaguely up through the gloom, at the busy toilers who were now so restful, and he fell into a reverent and thoughtful mood. An unwanted sense of his own youth and insignificance came over him. Leaning back in his chair, he gazed dreamily down the long vista of rooms, all silvery with the moonshine, which extended through the whole wing of the widespread building. His eyes fell upon the yellow glare of a distant lamp. John Vatsitstart-Smith sat up on his own chair, with his nerves all on edge. The light was advancing slowly towards him, pausing from time to time, and then coming jerkily onwards. The bearer moved noiselessly. In the utter silence there was no suspicion of the pat of a footfall. An idea of robbers entered the Englishman's head. He snuggled up further into the corner. The light was two rooms off. Now it was in the next chamber, and still there was no sound. With something approaching to a thrill of fear, the student observed the face, floating in the air, as it were, behind the flare of the lamp. The figure was wrapped in shadow, but the light fell full upon the strange, eager face. There was no mistaking the metallic glistening eyes and the cadaverous skin. It was the attendant with whom he had conversed. Vancestart Smith's first impulse was to come forward and address him. A few words of explanation would set the matter clear, and lead doubtless to his being conducted to some side door from which he might make his way to his hotel. As the man entered the chamber, however, there was something so stealthy in his movements and so furtive in his expression that the Englishman altered his intention. This was clearly no ordinary official walking the rounds. The fellow wore felt-soled slippers, stepped with a rising chest, and glanced quickly from left to right, while his hurried gasping breathing thrilled the flame of his lamp. Vancestart Smith crouched silently back into the corner and watched him keenly, convinced that his errand was one of secret and probably sinister import. There was no hesitation in the other's movements. He stepped lightly and swiftly across to one of the great cases, and drawing a key from his pocket, he unlocked it. From the upper shelf, he pulled down a mummy, which he bore away with him, and laid it, with much care and solicitude, upon the ground. By it he placed his lamp, 
and then squatting down beside it in eastern fashion, he began with long quivering fingers to undo the sear cloth and bandages which girth it round. As the crackling rolls of linen peeled off one after the other, a strong aromatic odor filled the chamber, and fragments of scented wood and spices pattered down upon the marble floor. It was clear to John Vansistart Smith that this mummy had never been unswathed before. The operation interested him keenly. He thrilled all over with curiosity, and his bird-like head protruded further and further from behind the door. When, however, the last roll had been removed from the four-thousand-year-old head, it was all that he could do to stifle an outcry of amazement. First, a cascade of long, black, glossy tresses poured over the workman's hands and arms. A second turn of the bandage revealed a low, white forehead with a pair of delicately arched eyebrows. A third uncovered a pair of bright, deeply fringed eyes and a straight, well-cut nose, while a fourth and last showed a sweet, full, sensitive mouth and a beautifully curved chin. The whole face was one of extraordinary loveliness, save for the one blemish that in the center of the forehead there was a single, irregular, coffee-colored splotch. It was a triumph of the embalmer's art. Francis Dart Smith's eyes grew larger and larger as he gazed upon it, and he chirruped in his throat with satisfaction. Its effect upon the Egyptologist was as nothing, however, compared with that which it produced upon the strange attendant. He threw his hands up into the air, burst into a harsh clatter of words, and then, hurling himself down upon the ground beside the mummy, he threw his arms around her and kissed her repeatedly upon the lips and the brow. Ma petite, he groaned in French. Ma pauvre petite. His voice broke with emotion, and his innumerable wrinkles quivered and writhed. But the student observed in the lamplight that his shining eyes were still as dry and tearless as two beads of steel. For some minutes he lay, with a twitching face, crooning and moaning over the beautiful head. Then he broke into a sudden smile and said some words in an unknown tongue, and sprang to his feet with a vigorous air of one who has braced himself for an effort. In the center of the room there was a large circular case which contained, as the student had frequently remarked, a magnificent collection of early Egyptian rings and precious stones. To this the attendant strode, and unlocking it, he threw it open. On the ledge at the side he placed his lamp, and beside it a small earthenware jar which he had drawn from his pocket. He then took a handful of rings from the case, and with a most serious and anxious face he proceeded to smear each in turn with some liquid substance from the earthen pot, holding them to the light as he did so. He was clearly disappointed with the first lot, for he threw them petulantly back into the case and drew out some more. One of these, a massive ring with a large crystal set in it, he seized and eagerly tested with the contents of the jar. Instantly he uttered a cry of joy and threw out his arms in a wild gesture which upset the pot and set the liquid streaming across the floor to the very feet of the Englishman. The attendant drew a red handkerchief from his bosom 
and mopping up the mess, he followed it into the corner, where in a moment he found himself face to face with his observer. "'Excuse me,' said John Vansestart Smith, with all imaginable politeness. I have been unfortunate enough to fall asleep behind this door. And you have been watching me? The other asked in English, with a most venomous look on his corpse-like face. The student was a man of veracity. I confess, said he, that I have noticed your movements, and that they have aroused my curiosity and interest in the highest degree. The man drew a long, flamboyant, bladed knife from his bosom. You have had a very narrow escape, he said. Had I seen you ten minutes ago, I should have driven this through your heart. As it is, if you touch me or interfere with me in any way, you are a dead man. I have no wish to interfere with you, the student answered. My presence here is entirely accidental. All I ask is that you will have the extreme kindness to show me out through some side door. He spoke with a great suavity, for the man was still pressing the tip of his dagger against the palm of his left hand, as though to assure himself of his sharpness, while his face preserved its malignant expression. "'If I thought,' said he, "'but no, perhaps it is as well. What is your name?' The Englishman gave it. "'Vansitart Smith,' the other repeated, are you the same Vansittart Smith who gave a paper in London upon El Cobb? I saw the report of it. Your knowledge of the subject is contemptible. Sir, cried the Egyptologist. Yet it is superior to that of many who make even greater pretensions. The whole keystone of our old life in Egypt was not the inscriptions or monuments of which you make so much, but our hermetic philosophy and mystic knowledge, of which you say little or nothing. Our old life, repeated the scholar, wide-eyed, and then suddenly, Good God, look at the mummy's face! The strange man turned and flashed his light upon the dead woman, uttering a long, doleful cry as he did so. The action of the air had already undone all the art of the embalmer. The skin had fallen away, the eyes had sunk inwards. The discolored lips had writhed away from the yellow teeth, and the brown mark upon the forehead alone showed that it was indeed the same face which had shown such youth and beauty a few short minutes before. The man flapped his hands together in grief and horror. Then, mastering himself by a strong effort, he turned his hard eyes once more upon the Englishman. "'It does not matter,' he said in a shaking voice. "'It does not really matter.' I came here tonight with a fixed determination to do something. It is now done. All else is as nothing. I have found my quest. The old curse is broken. I can rejoin her. What matter about her inanimate shell, so long as her spirit is awaiting me at the other side of the veil? These are wild words, said Vansestart Smith. He was becoming more and more convinced that he had to do with a madman. Time presses and I must go, continued the other. The moment is at hand, for which I have awaited this weary time. But I must show you out first. Come with me. Taking up the lamp, he turned from the disordered chamber and led the student swiftly through the long series of Egyptian, Assyrian, and Persian apartments. At the end of the ladder, he pushed open a small door, 
led into the wall and descended a winding stone staircase. The Englishman felt the cold, fresh air of the night upon his brow. There was a door opposite him which appeared to communicate with the street. To the right of this, another door stood ajar, throwing a spurt of yellow light across the passage. "'Come in here,' said the attendant shortly. Vansestart Smith hesitated. He had hoped that he had come to the end of his adventure, yet his curiosity was strong within him. He could not leave the matter unsolved, so he followed his strange companion into the lighted chamber. End of section 24